All right, Black Box Radio. We're zooming today. Uh, Black Box Radio in tandem with Amasi, the Amasi Center, Center of Black Wellness and Culture, right? Yeah, right, that's you? it. Yep, that's it. Okay, um, the illustrious Dr. Cleo Monago. Right, he's been on um, Black Box Radio a couple times already. We published his first interview, I think, back in February. Yep. And then he also came in and did a Rona report both times. He brought a lot of really powerful information. So make sure you go to blackboxradio.com. You can find his other interviews if you want to learn a bit more about him. Exactly. Dr. Cleo is definitely a family, a family member with Black Box Radio. But we also um, interested. Um, invited other people, right, right, to to speak on this. Um, yes, we didn't even say what the topic is yet. What what are we talking yeah, about? Said to speak on this Zoom, and the topic is the white. What is it? The white involvement. Yeah, the uprising of white involvement in black protests. Right, and we felt it was a phenomenon that we've never seen in our twenty six years of life. Reggie? 26 years of life. Well, <laughs> you know, we're young. Right, right. I think that... Oh, and I'm young, like, we've never seen this a much white involvement in any protest. So we thought it was pivotal, pivotal to talk uh-huh. about it. Right. Yeah, it, it is different this time. I think um, the nature of this protest is turning out to be sort of um, a generation, a generation changing event, given how, like how long things are going on and the global scope of it. So yeah. I think it, it is important to try to uh, unpack what makes this one different and, and what our experience is. And specifically what your experience was in Baltimore when you kind of saw with your own eyes what was going on. Exactly, exactly. And so the folks we have with us, they're going to introduce themselves. So we don't have to do that. Right. But um, we definitely wanted to delve into it in, into this topic and I think it's so good for the community because we're seeing things that we've never seen. We're in COVID-19, which is a, sh- it's a shift, right. a reset. Um, racism has been prevalent in this society from the beginning. And we're seeing a shift in the faces of the protest and the fight. And um, that's hence why we d- we're doing this Zoom to kind of get the other side because we're Black individuals. And we wanted to get the depiction of actual white people who who are protesting and also have a voice in this um, in our racist struggles. So that's what the Zoom is about. Dr. Cleo McNago with the Massey Center and me and G Black Box Radio and our folks. And we just gonna talk about it. Yeah, we starting out with Dr. Cleo. So he's gonna be the first person that you see. And uh, we'll get back with you afterwards to kind of give you some of our thoughts. Juices. Um, I am a behavioral health analyst and cultural anthropologist. I also run the Amasi Center for Black Wellness and Culture in Baltimore. And all that stuff is really means that I'm a very dimensional Black human rights activist. <laughs> okay. Wow. All right. And then I reached out. I had to call Chris Furnish because she was uh, a Black activist <laughs> before it was sexy. 
being a white girl. So we had to get Chris on the panel. So Chris, tell the people who you are. <laughs> Hi, everyone. My name is Chris Burnett. Uh, originally from Florida, but I live here in Washington, D.C. Um, Queenie and I met at a uh, protest against police brutality when a young man was uh, paralyzed by the police. We went out to protest in uh, PG, I believe that was PG County. Um, so yeah, I'm here. Thank you guys. <laughs> and then I reached out to G and G said, I have some great people to be on the panel. So G, who are the people that you kind of um, brought so, into our existence? Yeah, so the person that I invited that is here right now is Tiffany Black. And Tiffany, uh, I met Tiffany about five years ago, six years ago. Um, and we, we worked together for several years. She uh, started Video Lab which is a program over at Micah Place, which is actually how I met Queen. So that's kind of mm. a chain that kind of connects all the way back to uh, 2014 uh, when I first met Tiffany at, a, at National Night Out, which is the annual uh, event where they do events all around uh, the city for public safety. Interestingly enough, they were having like a resource fair out in uh, the park near my house. And... Uh, so that's where I met Tiff, learned about Video Lab, and we would started collaborating then. So I'll let Tiffany say a little bit about uh, a little bit about her story, who she is. Yeah, thanks, Jared. Um, yeah, so that was when I was finishing up the community arts program at the Maryland Institute College of Art, and I was awarded a community grant to continue my work after school. So I, I used that money to start Video Lab as a way to extend the resources of the art school to the, the surrounding community um, to open up those video resources. And I met Jared day one. I was out there uh, advertising for our first free workshop. So Jared's been part of Video Lab since day one and, and runs it now. Um, so, so now I'm, I'm based in New York where I'm an artist, um, but I am currently actually doing artist residency in Arkansas in the Ozark Mountains. So I am also very honored to be here. So thank you for including me. All right. So, and uh, I also, I reached out to John Lefkowitz. Uh, he did a Rona report and um, we felt, he said he was a psychologist and he had, he had such heavy views when he did his Rona report. So we said, he needs to be a part of this panel. We need a voice from Fulton, Merlin. So John Lefkowitz, are you there? Uh, I, I sure am. And thank you, Queen. Grateful to have an opportunity to be part of this group. Um, yeah, I'm a clinical and forensic psychologist here in uh, Central Maryland and Fulton, Maryland. And yeah, I think I, uh, I, I got to meet you through my lovely wife, who I know uh, did uh, worked with you on a couple of occasions, Queen. So yeah, delighted to be here. Looking forward to our discussion. All right. So G, you have a few other people. Well, I think these folks were invited or who came through the link or 
Okay. Yeah, Tiffany is the only panelist that I invited, and I was, I know, I know Jenny just from meeting her before. I get <laughs> Tiffany, you invited Jenny. Um, I don't know David, and we know Crystal down here. Yep. So let's let's just jump right in. So um, this is a conversation about the uprising of white involvement in black protests. So um, the, the biggest question I've gotten from the community is why is the presence now so uh, that we see so many white kids and white people are part of this protest at this point? Why did that happen? And what was the precipice for that? Brother Cleo? Well, I'm the first white person to talk. Okay. <laughs> yes, the first white person. <laughs> <laughs> because um, you know, I thought he was asking white folks um, why they are suddenly in more numbers than relatively previously involved in black murder inspired protests. I think before I do speak, Queen, I think mm -hmm. we should hear from some of these people who look like the folks you're talking about. That might be true. I would just wanted to see like a behavior standpoint, but that'd be great. So oh, anybody jump in. I can assure you I'm going to give my behavioral analysis and perspective on the whole issue, but I want to have a context in which you respond to, which is centered around the question. Absolutely. Okay, so I guess that would be, Chris, can you give us a little insight into that? So we're talking about why the presence of white people is growing in, in you know, protests surrounded by murders of black men and women and uh, yep. I, th I think it's honestly the younger generation is just not used is not born in an age where you know pe people believe in that kind of stuff and it's it's really dying out those beliefs are really fading away uh, as the older generations are you know leaving the earth and um, I, I think it's just a matter of that racism just starting to die away and, and people of younger generations just saying, you know, this is crazy. This is ridiculous. Why, why, are, what is racism in any ways? And I know I'm from the South, so I'm, I was raised uh, around people who have, you know, racist tendencies and thoughts and perceptions of other people, even own members of my family. And so me as an individual, I've been, I've been fighting, uh, I've been protesting this racism in, amongst my own community and my own family and, uh, you know, people I've grown up with and gone to school with my entire life. And uh, I think it's just people coming together and saying enough is enough, um, young people especially. So that, that is my two cents. Okay, so young people are spearheading. You feel that young people don't have the, the baggage that us older folks have, and they, they really see that this is lunacy and we need to change. Right. So is so the youth, because I see a lot of young people at these protests. So, um, Sister Tiffany, what do you think about the presence of white people in this protest? I think it's heartening to see a lot more white presence and white people taking ownership of their place in this conversation. Um, 
And I think it's also heartening to see a lot, a lot more white people believing black people. Um, to me, that's a very positive thing that has added to a higher presence of, of white people in these protests, protests like this. And, um, you know, I, I think coronavirus does have a part to play in it. You know, people are, are home. They're, they're either not working or working from home and have more time and energy to put into this. So I, I do think that that's worth mentioning. Um, but I, I also like to hope that, that white people are starting to see, okay, this is a cycle that, that keeps repeating itself uh, of violence against black people. Um, especially at the hands of, of, of the police and our, our racist structures of our society. So these cycles keep happening and what's changing? Um, so this time around this conversation, I'm hearing more and more white people, what are you doing to step up? What kind of inner reflection are you doing um, to self-educate and figure out what is your part in this conversation? And so I, I like to think that has a lot to do with with the higher numbers. Hmm. Great assessment, great assessment. Okay, um, Brother John, from a psychologist uh, standpoint, what do you think the presence of uh, our white brothers and sisters being present in uh, the protests? What do you think about that? Well, I think it's critical for uh, change to occur in the broader society and culture. I mean, unfortunately, in our in our country, the only way change is really going to happen is if white people get involved. And you know, I understand whether I like it or not. I'm I'm privileged. I mean, this country was built for for white people, white men in particular. You know, I've had every every privilege possible just just by you know, the uh, dice roll of birth of being born male and, and, and white in, a, uh, in, in an upscale suburb of New York. So, but, but the problem is, is if, you know, someone like George Floyd can't breathe and is murdered in public by an alleged officer of the law, then as others have said, none of us can breathe. And I, I think we're clearly living in a society built on, you know, extraordinary injustice, slavery, genocide of the Native Americans. And we've never really confronted our history as, as Americans. And unfortunately, the whitewashing is going on till present day and is unfortunately really embodied in the current, uh, in the current White House. So, you know, I think it's, you know, certainly I want to do my small part by going to, going to a protest. Um, and I think, you know, psychologically, I think a lot of people have woken up with ordinarily disturbing, you know, I mean, it's just a, a kind of a snowball effect of uh, extraordinarily disturbing videos, uh, particularly the most recent one with uh, the the real the public lynching of, of George Floyd, which I know mm -hmm. we can all you know recognize, was just just beyond appalling, and even I think um, contributed to some kind of mass trauma, which we're all needing to to come together for proper redress. 
So I, I think there's just so many different factors. And I think racism is a crucial and important piece, but I also think there's a socioeconomic piece, there's a class piece, um, there's uh, a lot that's built into systems and institutions. It's gonna require a lot of people to work hard at making significant changes. Excuse me. Chris mentioned that from her perspective, young people have possibly a new perspective compared to people from the past. Um, twice, Tiffany Black mentioned that she would like to hope that things have changed and that she would like to think that things have changed. Um, and then she mentioned COVID. And I agree with that, that that's, that's relevant here. And I'll get to my perspective in a moment. And Mr. Lefkowitz talked about being privileged and talked about where he came from and things along those lines. Um, I think it's important, particularly given what you said, Chris, to understand that, for example, in Charlottesville and in many of the attacks, a lot of these people are young, young white people. Um, the murderers, some of them, were young white people. And D David Chauvin, I think that's his name was, who murdered Floyd, was not an elderly man. Um, there are lots of young people, male and female, who are involved in violence toward Black people, who are involved in, like there's, there's a video that was on a show that I saw recently where there were some young white kids who were at a um, protest who were making fun of George Floyd. And there's pictures that have come out with young people, young white males and females hanging around them, you know, kind of egging them on, where they're joking, they're in the, they have each other on each other's neck trying to make fun of what happened to George Floyd. So given that, and I can go on with, with many more examples, I don't see this as something from the past and from, from a, an older generation that a younger generation is resistant to. Um, and when I hear Tiffany say that she would like to hope that things are better, I'm not sure she believes that things really are better when she puts it, when she frames it like that. And I want to reiterate that I agree with her that COVID-19, which has led to unemployment, which has led to social restriction, which has led to kids not being in school, young people not being able to go to school. And there were people, particularly white people before Floyd was murdered, who made the news because they were relatively large groups, not mass groups like the protests, but really relatively large groups of white people in the Midwest and other parts of the country protesting the social distancing. You might have seen some of that in the news. So um, before giving my perspective on what I think the uprising is about, I just wanted to underscore some of the things that was said and also just challenge the idea that these are a bunch of of people who are not like the older people. That has not been what I've witnessed. And I think while we ponder what I'm saying, we can still remember the question is what is leading to the apparent uprising of white people in, involved in black protest? Hmm. But, but you know, I, I'm curious, Cleo, because I'm not sure I would frame it as a, as a I mean, it, 
it, it's true, it is a black protest, but in a lot of ways, I see this as, as a human protest, as a protest against injustice, against racism, against intolerance, against police brutality. And again, it's, it's sort of a given, most of that is directed at people of color. But I see this in much broader terms. Yes, it's about Black Lives Matter, indeed. Um, but I think it's, it's also about broader, broader societal issues. Uh, whereas, of course, the focus is black law is about black lives and police brutality directed against people of color. Well, consider this. May I for a second? Sure. Um, John, I wanted to. I understand exactly what you're saying. It is uh, clearly there are a lot of other issues that are being brought to the table here. One of the things that I find interesting is sometimes when it does spread that way the original point kind of gets lost. So all of these other issues get pulled into the conversation and the primary issue kind of gets lost in all the noise. Mm -hmm. So it sprawls out and stops being about what it was originally about. And all of these other ideas and other concerns get pulled into the back door and yeah. the, will, the will to change is dispersed so it takes a lot of momentum and focus to make uh, substantial change. And when okay. that will gets dispersed and, and diluted through all of these other ideas, a lot of times you don't get what you initially set out to get. So that's one yeah. of the things that kind of comes up for me when I, when I think about how all of these other very important and valid uh, ideas and things that raise people's attention, when they get hauled into um, a protest, it's sometimes confuses and disperses the attention and, you know, we don't get what we're looking for. Right. No, I'm sorry. That by no means was I attempting to dilute that this, is, that this is about police, that this is about Black Lives Matter. This is about police brutality directed at people of color. But I, I'm just speaking to more, you know, uh, in, in, in a broader way, I think it, it can also speak to, and that may be part of what uh, provides the impulse for some people who are of the majority culture, who are white, to be part of this, because this just profound and extraordinary, you know, injustice and tolerance and racism that's been part and parcel of our uh, society and culture for so long, it just, it's, it's unconscionable. It just can't, I mean, we have to do everything we can to, to, to try to make that, try to change that. I would like to, um reiterate the question of why white involvement was in other considerations. Um, from my perspective, when Amadou Diallo was murdered, that was heart-wrenching and heart-breaking. When Eula Love, who some of you are too young to remember, or too far from the black community to remember if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're beyond 50, is still heartbreaking for me. Eula Love, in South Central Los Angeles in 1979, was a black woman who couldn't afford to pay her gas bill. And the gas man came out to turn her gas off. And she had four little children. And she came out and asked the man not to go in the back and turn her, and turn her gas off. And she went into the house and got a butter knife. You know, those knives that only cut butter that are not, they're too dull to cut anything else. She got a butter knife and said, please do not turn off the gas because I have children. Then he called the police 
the police came and within two minutes she was shot to death and killed. And in front of, in front of her children, she was trying to protect from, from, from the winter. So I have tons of, of heart-wrenching stories, but there was no, there was no social, there was no phone, you know, the cell phones or the smartphones back then. But there, and they were, just like there were no smartphones when Amadou was murdered or when Sean Bell was murdered, and I can go on and on, but there has been smartphones since Mike Brown was murdered, since Sandra Bland was murdered, since Tamir Rice was murdered, since Trayvon was murdered, though that was not caught on videotape. So my point in terms of reiterating the question is, why now? Because why didn't the murder of a 12-year-old child in a park not result in this kind of reaction? Why did the full footage of Eric Garner's murder which is on tape, result in this kind of response. When, when um, Castillo was sitting in his car, being very respectful to the police, calling him sir and everything, and said, sir, just so you can know I have a gun, and he was murdered within moments after that, on video live, with his bloody girlfriend sitting next to him and his bloody girlfriend's daughter screaming, screaming and hollering in the back seat. Those are pretty, and there's more. I'm just covering some of the bases. Those are pretty morbid, horrendous, horrible things that were captured on video for the nation to see. And so that's why giving those stories to bring it back up to why I'm having this question, why now? And I think it's important, at least for me, to break down explicitly what the factors are so we don't fool ourselves and to think something is going on that may or may not be going on. Because what you mentioned, Lefko, is, was how horrendous George Floyd's murder was. Well, um, Trayvon Martin was missing for three days, and his parents didn't even know where he was, and his license was in his pocket, but he was made a John Doe because of racism, and they found out three days from, from the day of his murder that he, that he was murdered. Those are pretty horrendous atrocious, heart-wrenching things. And, I, and, I, and that's just some of the stories. There's, there's other horrible stories that have been going on that white people know about for centuries, decades, weeks, months. Walter Scott, who was murdered casually by a very kickback white man who just shot him while, he, while you know, chilling. So given that we have all these examples of videotape brutal murder of innocent, unarmed Black people. What's going on now? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's, there's hundreds of, there must be hundreds of thousands of examples of innocent, unarmed Black people be, being murdered by white people in an authority, in an author, authority position. And vigilantes who are not in authority position. And vigilantes like George Zimmerman. And oh yeah, vigilantes, right. It's yeah, absolutely. In, in Georgia, they were everyday white folks. Oh yeah, that, that's true. They were in, in, the, in last time. That, the last word that young man heard in his, in his whole existence was, fuck that nigga. That was a, the last terms he heard before he was, while he was dying. Wow. Yeah, sadly, there's parts of the country where this kind of, uh, racism is more explicit and more widely tolerated by certain subcultures and 
you know, that's even more unconscionable and harder to make changes in unless it really is a, such a, there has to be such a strong cultural and societal push for that. But the question um, is why now? In terms yeah, of white involvement, that's the topic. That's a good question. Yeah, that's a good question. Could be a, a good question. white guilt. Well, you weren't guilty after Tamir Rice? Why the guilt now, in terms of in the streets? And it's, and it's a good question. And it's the reason I said white guilt is because it's what I'm feeling as a white individual right now in this moment. Like, why, why now? Why didn't I do something when Sandra Bland died? When, you know, and so why couldn't we as a collective? And I honestly don't know the answer to that question. Wow. Yeah, you know, I think it's like Malcolm, Malcolm Gladwell's concept of a, of a tipping point. I mean, I just think there's, you know, a, 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 I think there's, it's multifactorial. Um, I think there's so many different elements in, in the culture going on, as I think Tiffany mentioned. I mean, the COVID-19, it's not only that there's a pandemic going on, but as we know, it's it's sadly disproportionately affecting uh, black communities, um, not only in terms of the infection rate, but in terms of the death rate for a whole, and, and that just screams out about the inequality. But that's, not, but, but that's not why white people are showing up to protest because of COVID. No, it, 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 that's not, no, but I'm saying that, that the fact that white people are showing up to protest, it has to do with seeing perhaps more clearly the profound, uh, inequalities in our society, and that's one piece that's becoming more that's coming more and more to light. And I just think it's a tipping point of so many of these things over so long. Yeah, should it have been taken? Should it have? I think your point, Cleo, is that why is it taken until 2020? This has been going on to, since 1619, or you know, literally for hundreds of years. Um, and but I mean, I think it's important also rather than to see this as uh, in a way that's kind of punitive or well it's about it's about time y'all are finally uh finally joining such a such a critical struggle that's been in your face for so long instead i think it's important to to celebrate it to support it to um yeah and to be you know and, and to be part of it as much as possible well brother john can i step in for a second um, I understand your perspective. It comes from a perspective that now people are woke and, and that, um, in, in other words, you're saying, since you guys are present, let's take it from here. But you have to look at the relationship that Black people have had with white people and with the rules of this country. And it's very hard for us to trust that type of presence because of the history of the relationship. So to you, you come from a place where there's been no attack, where you have not had the type of experiences that we've been experiencing. So you, you're saying, since you guys are here, now you're, you're our allies and we should deal with that. And, that, is, and that. and we say thank you in some ways, but in other ways, from the relationships that we've had prior and the climate of this country, it is very hard for us to trust that type of presence. And I think you're not understanding the, the kind of um, questioning of why are you present? Mm -hmm. You understand, it's not just like 
let's we're not not celebrating it what we're saying is why is it why is it happening in such a enormous numbers at this point and at this time yeah. so that's where we're saying is how do we even trust that type of presence do you, yeah, do you that's kind of get that oh absolutely that's a great point queen and it's well under again yeah, and that's absolutely uh you know un understood that you should be mistrustful and will this just once some of the intensity of this dissipates will the kind of the, the white people who've been going to these protests will they just kind of drift off and disappear i mean those are those are good questions um it just seems like you you know that it's important from a i i think there's so many wrongs and injustices that have occurred in this country to, to people of color you know not just the the recent cases in the last few weeks or months names we're all sadly familiar with uh, but for literally hundreds of years, and as you know, Cleo pointed out, we haven't had most of those on film. Uh, but you know, now I think, in, and that distrust is is perfectly understandable. But again, what what we need to do is we need to have all of our voices heard, and most importantly, we need to have all of our uh, votes counted in November to really make more to, to help to facilitate more institutional change. Okay. I want to be clear about that. I don't see, I don't have an, it's an about time. Because not enough has happened for me to have that perspective. So I don't have an about time perspective. I want to make that clear. Because nothing has happened in terms of transformation societally. And I don't feel like my life is less threatened yet. So I don't have an about time perspective at all. And I don't feel like I'm being punitive because I don't have, I'm just on Zoom in a Zoom interface having a conversation and, tr and trying to deconstruct what's going on here. And this instance from a white perspective, since that's the, since that's the central topic in terms of why you're involved. And um, I don't feel grateful for white people being involved. I, I need more information first. And that's what I'm looking for, not only among the people that are in this discussion, but you know, I mean, my office is in, is in Baltimore near just a block from where Baltimore protests were happening. And there were people walking down my predominantly black street, white folks with signs saying whites need, whites should stop being silent and whites should, uh, and, and Black Lives Matters, of course, I mean, there were signs all over the place. And I actually asked some these young people, you know, questions about, you know, what's going on. I asked some black people questions too. But, um, my point to you, you know, that I'm just searching out to find out what's going on from white people's perspective. Um, and I don't have any uh, conclusions yet, including about time. Okay. Okay. Well, that's valid. Um, Tiffany, I would like to hear a little from you. Yes. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I, I definitely have some thoughts and I, I um, agree with Dr. Monago, your, your points that it's not like any of this has gotten worse. It's being filmed now and, and maybe perhaps, you know, the, those horrible videos of being more widespread might be adding to the outrage and the consciousness of white people that yes, this is a reality, this is really happening in our country. Um, I, I did want to 
I, I just found out this week that I'm, I'm living, I mentioned that I'm down in Arkansas right now, and I'm living only two hours away from the headquarters of the KKK, mm-hmm. which, is in, which is in Harrison, Arkansas. And um, that's, so this is, I've done a little bit of research, and this is a, a small town of only about 13,000 people. And last week they, they did have a protest in honor of George Floyd. And it looked like they had about 300 people come out and there was an opposition. There was a group of white supremacists who came with their, their rifles, their Confederate flags. Everything remained peaceful. Um, the, white, the white nationalists said that they were there to protect property and keep, you know, in case things got out of hand. Um, but the protesters who were interviewed were saying that five to 10 years ago, that a demonstration like that would not have even been possible. It would not have been allowed to even take place there. So that that does bring another question up to me. Um, you know, does that mean that that things are possibly changing in our society? That that more people are more white people are really joining in on this fight. Um, to me, that seems like a, a positive example. That, that hopefully times are changing. But you know, this other question is coming up too now in this discussion of the performative ally. And that is a, a new term, at least to me, that I am just now hearing and really trying to understand. Please, please got some sirens going on. Yeah, sorry, the noise guys, you know, inner city living, pardon me. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> That's one thing I'm not hearing down here in the Ozark Mountains. Um, <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, but the, this whole idea of the performative ally and what is that and why are white people being so offended by that term? Um, you know, I really appreciate the conversations that are calling us to be very deeply reflective on our place within these conversations about, about race and what it means to be an anti-racist, what, what does that work actually mean? Dismantling white supremacy and um, you know, this, this privilege that we have in, the, in this society that was built for white people, wh- what, does that, what does that mean for white people and what does that look like? And do we really have the courage to take part in this or are we just, out there protesting because we want to make sure that we were on the right side of history. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, I, I guess I don't, it's not that I have the answers. I definitely have the questions as well. I saw this meme on Instagram um, yesterday that said something like, isn't it crazy how we all just went from learning how to bake bread from scratch to dismantling white supremacy within the span of two weeks, um, <laughs> which is kind of a funny way to put it, but it, it makes you stop to think. People I don't are know thinking about being bored in their houses and, oh, I'm so bored, there's nothing to do, I'm just stuck at home all the time. Well, why don't I go out and like dismantle our society, our racist society? Well, it's going to take a little more than. I, um, I want to acknowledge uh, real quick. Crystal, Crystal had a, um, her hand up. Did you did you have a, a comment, Chris? I see your hand up. Yes, yes, I do. I did have a comment. Um, okay. Sorry. Can you? So, from my perspective, um, 
I don't really feel like, and it's not so much a, 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 a trust issue as it is once again, um, us not being able to uh, be in control or in charge of our own, our own movement. Um, I do believe that our uh, white uh, friends, family, neighbors do have a do have a movement that they need to do for their own accountability, for their own um, um, repairing their own mental um, thought process toward other toward brown, black and brown people. But I believe that that is something that is their own separate and should be their own separate um, uh, cross to bear and not intertwined within what we are asking for because they're never going to feel what we feel the way we feel it. There have been videos played and seen and you know we just upgraded it now to body cameras. But there's been videos where you know that that's been out for years. And so I guess my thought process is so was it was it more heart-wrenching to see someone with with their with a knee on their neck than it is to see somebody getting shot in the back? To see someone getting shot in the face? Was that more heart-wrenching because it was a different form of killing? He cried out for his mother. It was, it was longer. I'm just not understanding the, the thought process of what made this more, um, more, um, more horrific than any other um, killings. I mean, even if you want to go way back in time and see people hanging from a tree, I mean, what, was more, what is more horrific now? So my, my, conclusion, my conclusive thought is, Yes, there is a place, but I believe that it's not a place that's entwined. I do believe that, that there are things that people are feeling guilty about, things that people have been silent about, and things that need to be addressed within our white brothers' um, communities amongst themselves to get that point across of what they are feeling and what they need to be responsible for and responsible to because it has not gotten better. But what we have to do is, you know, it's everything that we do, it's almost like outside people come in and take some level of authority over that. We need to be authority and leaders of our own movement the way we need our movement to be. It's not that we're not, um, it's not that we're not feeling um, okay with and saying, oh, well, maybe they see it or they get it but we don't know what, from what perspective, like you guys can't really understand our mindset. We don't know from what perspective you guys really get it. Or if it's for some people, it's an opportunity right now because there's not much else to do, you know. Um, but I'm not going for the, um, for the well, it's visual, it's videotape now, and whatever. It's, it's been videotape. It didn't matter. We thought that taking video into the courts and things like that, it doesn't matter because black lives don't seem to matter in the United States, which we built. So understandably, and to your point about privilege and the way that, the, way, uh, the U US was built, understandably, but our toil and sweat and tears and those of our, um, of our Native American brothers and sisters went to build this, this country. So it's like, it, it, it doesn't matter. So we need to understand, um, we really need to understand from what perspective and you know and I know that there were there were um white brothers and sisters in the civil rights movement but the civil rights movement didn't move us very far because we still are looked at as subhuman citizens 
and we don't have civil rights. Our civil rights don't matter. So how can we move parallel to each other with our own, with our own causes that intersect at creating a United States where all lives matter no matter what? Hmm. Great point. I mean, that's a valid point. So um, I, um, I have something about work, working with young people um, who are of the age of the young people who are out there from all different aspects. I, I think a lot of the motivation is really about signaling, um, signaling to their peers, um, the, the behavior that has kind of developed over the course of the last several years where everyone is pretty much living their lives publicly, online, they sharing everything that they do. Um, and there is sort of their habitual way of being. So there's really no hiding place for a young person because everyone is always used to seeing everything that they do. And a lot of times ideas and activities and stuff kind of swell just from the fact of young people signaling to each other and seeking status among themselves. And it is not even, it's connected somewhat to the issue, but really it's about the status that they're seeking amongst themselves and what their friends think. I mean, for young people, what your friends and what your peers think about you is an incredible incentive. They, I mean, it is paramount for young people to have the right, um, have the right standing among their peers. And the way that they display that standing now is performatively on social media. They stage their entire lives from the way the angles they put out on pictures to stories that they tell through their feed. It's a behavior that's developed in the last several years in the way that people present themselves. So I don't want to, I, I want to put out that part of the performative nature that some of the people who are involved now, especially the young people, is really an extension of the performative way that they have been signaling to each other all along. So mm -hmm. all it takes is a few influential people who are setting a trend and everybody else just wants to signal that they are it's a very low friction thing just to put up a black square or whatever. It's a low friction thing just to send a signal that says, hey, you know, I'm with you. Um, and it's more, it's easier to do that than to not. So hmm. I think there are a lot of people who are, who are involved to the degree that it's easier to do it than to not do it. So there's like some social accountability built in there. I think that's an extremely important piece and I, and I want to add to that, that the social performance may not have nothing to do with who people really are. Right. It's a peer group performance process that's not necessarily based on who they are at their core. It's a public performance, sometimes based on likes. And in this instance, not necessarily YouTube or Facebook likes, but, but societal likes. We all know that even though people are called a Facebook friend, 99% of the people that who you call your Facebook friend you never even met, you don't even know. And the term friend does have a specific meaning, but it loses its, its real meaning in that context. So I just want to reiterate and support what you just said, brother, because the performance piece, with it being indeed a performance sometimes, is an important 
piece, I think, going on right now. Mm. That's a whole other aspect. People are performing. So this is, a, and signaling, never thought of that. All right, anybody else want to chime in into that? I just want to say that I think us as white people have a big job to do, you know, it's not just about going out one day and protesting in front of your town hall or state capitol or whatever. It's, it's about addressing it whenever you see it, wherever you see it, amongst whoever you're around. That's a way of, you know, somewhat breaking down that, you know, that racist, uh, you know, thought process and just perception of other people is just to, as white people always, always call it out when you see it. That's like the least we can do. Yeah, I, I want to just, I think that's a great point, Chris. Um, I think that's just so important, both in um, explicit and implicit ways. In other words, you know, clearly if you see a wrong going on, if you see some intolerance or racism, doing whatever you can to call it out in the moment. But I think there's other smaller things you can do. And again, I'm not trying to uh, give myself a pat on the back, but the organization, the professional organizations I'm in are predominantly, overwhelmingly white because it's, um, it's judges, it's lawyers, it's forensic psychologists in the, in the family law sphere. And yes, there's a few, um, there, there are, you, you do see a few people of color, but I always make, and I'm, again, I, I say this with all due, it doesn't, it sounds maybe slightly immodest, I don't mean it that way, but I know I always go out of my way to introduce myself to somebody of color and just, as I might do with somebody who's white, just because, you know, you're at a conference in New Orleans or Boston or Chicago or wherever, and you're meeting people, but, and I think people tend to gravitate more toward people who are like themselves, but I always try to push myself and stretch um, by meeting people who, people who are definitely unlike me. Um, because I think it's important and then, you know, to, for those people who may feel a little uncomfortable in a predominantly white environment, that the more, you know, we can do as the kind of majority race in a particular even professional environment, I think it's incumbent on us to make folks like them feel welcome to say nothing of the fact when you see some injustice going on to, within the best of your ability to call that out. Oh. Mr. Um, Lefkowitz, your psychologist? Your psychologist? Uh, I am a board certified clinical psychologist with a forensic specialty, Dr. Cleo. Okay, so you, you understand how the mind works and, and conscious and unconsciousness, right? Uh, well, I have, a, I have some understanding of that. Okay, I mentioned that because, and I don't want necessarily us to go on a tangent with this, but you know, language is the furniture of our minds. It's where it's, it's a process of linguistics that we use to express how we see the world. And language, and, and English is full of white supremacist linguistic norms. You know, you know, little white lies, and there's no such thing in this country as a term black slavery. There's a, there's a term white slavery, but you don't need to turn black on slavery because it's redundant in the white supremacist society. Slave means black. Why add, when you say white slavery, you have to say white slavery. 
you never heard people used to say terms like that's a, there's black slavery going on over there. I'm just giving examples of language. Mm -hmm. But, and the reason I'm giving that example is because the term people of color is problematic because, especially when you're talking about black people specifically, because people of color in theory means people who are not white or so-called non-whites. It refers, that means it refers to Asians, Latinos, etc. But black means black. And one of the primary problems we hear, particularly as manifested by police department, is lethal levels of anti-blackness, not anti-people of color, because Asians ain't going through this at this level. And relative, even relative to black people, Latinos aren't going through this at this level. So I think it's important to understand that people of color is a, is a problematic term because it really means not white, which is a white supremacist hierarchical term. And we should say black if we're talking about black people or Asian if we're talking about Asian people or native if we're talking about native people because there's different experiential phenomena that comes with those labels and experiences. And right now we're talking about the murder of black folks. I want to mention that. I also want to mention that in terms of performance, I think you know that the NFL just apologized for racism. Did you know that? Did hear that. Uh, yeah, they did sort of. They sort of did. They should, could have gone further, but Roger well, of Goodell course, did make a course. statement. Well, I mean, they still haven't given Colin Kaepernick a job. Yeah. And, he's, and he does not have a job because he stood up for black people. Yes. That's the risk of being redundant, not for people of color, but for black people. And he said, no, I'm not going to play football and act like this is not going on in the wake of another murder. I'm going to step, step the, up on my knees and protest. And that's why people who are inferior to him in terms of capacity to play football have gotten jobs over him. But the NFL apologized, but they didn't atone or do anything about their white supremacy. This is an example of performance when people give, give wordsmith thing to a, an alleged apology, but do nothing systemically to change things or to repair things. But I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to say what I think is going on here since we're not here forever. I think um, white people are having what I call a white disassociative safari. We know what a safari is, right? When people, usually white, go someplace and look at the natives from their vehicle or whatever. And I think, um, and, this, and this is why the NFL apologized, though they didn't do nothing to change the, the landscape, I think that white people are involved in disassociative behavior given the murder of George Floyd and some of them right now feeling vulnerable because of unemployment, feeling vulnerable because of social restrictions, feeling vulnerable because we don't know what's gonna happen with this COVID-19 thing. And some, some probably um, genetic level concerns around black, black back backlash in the performance piece that you raised all together among other things are creating white presence in these black movements because if right now if you disassociate yourself from it by being in the presence of black people you don't look racist and you won't be called racist again it goes back to what g said about performance if you perform by proximity like you're not a racist you might not be seen as a racist 
And there are some white people, even racist white people, who are ashamed by a public accusation of being called a racist, who prefer not to have that association and will go out of their way, including apologizing, giving BS disingenuous apologies to not be associated with racism, particularly after a high profile murder. And, the, and another thing I want to put out there too, and I hope I'm not mix, mixing too much, is that since white people are wanting to be comrades, as I'm told, I think it's important to understand that the damage that white supremacy does is not just in police brutality. For example, I've never asked white people this because I've never cared what the, what the answers were, but here you are, so I'm going to ask. How many of you watch television? Raise your hand, please, if you, if you take a gander at television. Okay, that's most of it. All right, go and admit it, John. He ain't going to kill you. <laughs> and uh, how many names, <laughs> particularly on ABC, CBS, CNN, on the stations that everybody have access to that you'll need a lot of money to have, like cable and all that stuff, name a, a, a show on TV that has a reliable black love story. A reliable, what was it? A reliable black, I mean, every week you can go to this show and that's not a comedy. I want to make, I should, I forgot, almost forgot to say that it's not a comedy. Mm -hmm. That you're not laughing and then there's not punchlines and the laugh track going at, after the end of any, every movement. But what white people get to have, which is drama, you know, uh, slices of life, movie of the week, shows on media that show black people loving each other without a laugh track. Don't hurt yourself, but try to think of something. I don't think I could even name that for white people. I mean, that's the kind of... Oh, no, but... there's lots of shows about white love. There's lots, oh. of, there's lots of movies and romantic shows about white folks loving each other and shows on TV about that. But the question is not white folks this time. This is a, a whiteless moment in terms of intentionality. <laughs> name the black show that's on television that shows black people loving each other without a, without a laugh track. Is there one? Blackish on Netflix. Okay, that people always bring up blackish, even when I say not a comedy. Uh, isn't isn't blackish a comedy? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Not a comedy, and, yeah. and not with a biracial that's wife. That's a whole nother. That's a whole nother. So comedy. we're saying this because. So the answer to that question, you all, is no. They don't, they don't exist. So that's another example of mentally damaging and self-conceptually damaging white supremacy context that leads black people to question their worth, question their value, and question their lovability. And little children watch these, these, these shows and are not given permission to have a critical analysis because we don't want to offend white folks or white Jesus or whatever other myths we can come up with. So the children sit there and learn to be black white supremacists. And then white people who do the hiring are looking for black people that make them comfortable. And they hire the black white supremacists so they can be comfortable. And so, so instead of somebody who's effectively able to be a benefit to people that look like them in the job market. Hmm. Yeah. So, so I'm trying to give you um, an understanding of how this works since the implication is that you care. Because the, the problem of white supremacy does, did not start with George Floyd's brutal murder. 
It won't end with it. And if people's in, if white people's involvement in being present in a midst of black protest is based on performance or white disassociation to not be seen as bad and racist, therefore I'll be in that mix with a Black Lives Matter sign after the, the thousandth murder that I know about. If we don't if we don't really look at these things from these nuanced perspectives, it's just a game. Mm -hmm. And that's my concern regarding should I feel about time? I don't feel that way, like I said, or anything. I'm looking at trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Mm -hmm. So in other words, Dr. Cleo, you're saying you're not convinced with the presence of white people and that um, it, it, this perform what you're saying is the behavior belies in something. It's either performing or not one disassociation because I can particularly, as a black person, see how you can be outraged of any race. I can definitely see that. The kill, what we saw was the kill. So I can totally understand why any human can be outraged. Now I can't explain why the outrage of white citizens are sort such more, more outraged in this kill, but I don't, I can't say that, um, I couldn't see why it would pull somebody out of their house of any color to protest. Now, my question is, how, how do we now package this type of outrage for the betterment of everyone, and especially Black people? Can we really dismantle the white supremacy apparatus that is around all of us? And are we, is protest going to be enough? Because it's never been enough. So what do we do from here? Because we can have all these analogies. We have the presence, so can we use these allies to build or remove them and we, and we be in a better place? That's what I want to know. So there are a couple of people who had their hands up. Uh, that okay. question is in the air. I want to give folks who had their hands up an opportunity. I think, Crystal, you have your hand up? I do. Yes, sir. Okay. Okay, so I, I want to go back to... Uh, a couple of things that I thought I heard, Mr. Le Levowitz. Le Levowitz. Uh, <coughs> Le okay, I, I really messed that up. But um, one of the things that you mentioned was about, um, you know, and I, and I think I'm paraphrasing it correctly, is, is going out of your way to make sure that um, Black folk or people of color, people that don't look like you, um, feel comfortable um, in the settings uh, where you may become engaged with them. And so uh, piggybacking a little bit on what Dr. Cleo was saying, um, it has been my experience that when I walk into, when I, and I can only speak for me, when I walk into a room where there's predominantly um, um, people that don't look like me or white people, I feel fine. It seems to me that it's the white people that start feeling uncomfortable and go out of their way in some respect to address me or what have you. Um, and, I, and, and the reason why I'm saying that is because until we get to the root cause of why um, so many in particularly um, our black males are being targeted, which they've been targeted way back when, and I'll go back to the strange fruit on the tree hanging. Um, it is because there is endemically 
a self-esteem issue and a fear issue within the quote unquote majority community. That when a black male enters or comes around, five police officers, so what can one do for five? Or if a police officer, and I'm just using police officer as one example because there are many other of civilians who have, who have treated um, our African-American males the same way. Um, why when you show up for one black man who's unarmed, maybe sitting in their car or just having a conversation with someone, you then call in five backup cars, where if it is a white soul, so there is endemically a fear factor there, a fear of this black man and his power, his power and prowess as a human being, which I believe endemically, if we get to the surface of this and we talk about psychology, that a lot of white people don't feel. So we need to deal with the systemic problem within our, our, our specific communities of where this comes from. It's to, it is not just about um, a black person feeling less than, it is a projection of that black male feeling less than because the actual perpetrator that's perpetrating against him or her is really the one who sees themselves as less than. Whether it's because they have looked at history and really don't see themselves there predominantly in history from, from the beginning beyond taking something or having other people to build something from them. So when you say about coming in a room and making us feel comfortable, I think that that's not something that we necessarily need. Now, if five police officers come in a room and there's a black male in there, yes, he needs to feel comfortable because they're being killed at an alarming rate. But on the general, general perspective, um, when we enter a room, we already have our self-esteem, our creativity, um, our empowerment intact, or we would not be entering the room. That's just the comment. Yeah, I think there's I think there's a lot of individual variability with that, Crystal. I'm not talking mm -hmm. about a small room. I'm talking about big, like you know, conference room with maybe hundreds of people. And I always, you know, I, I mean, listen, it's a it, it's a it's a in the moment choice. It's a lot easier for me to hang out with people I know from Maryland who are, well, I mean, frankly, mostly mostly white. But whatever people I know from going to conferences, but I always go out of my way to try to introduce myself to people who may be new or people who may feel um, uh, more excluded. Um, so for whatever that means, and maybe you know whether that's wrong or right. If someone's not interested in talking with me, they can always ignore me or walk away, which is fine as well. But I was just using that as an example. I think it was Chris. Now I'm sorry, I can't remember if it was Chris or. Um, somebody else who mentioned it, um, that, you know, about addressing um, racism or unjust or intol intolerance when you, when you see it. So I was just speaking to the fact that there are ways that happen sometimes that are, are, are more subtle. Um, but I, I think, um, you know, we did get a little bit away from what Queen threw out there to the group. Right, well, I was just trying to give folks who had their hands up a chance. Oh, sure. They've been waiting to speak for a minute, so. Okay, well, go ahead. Let's, let's go back around. Got any more hands? Amy's, uh, I see Amy's yeah. hand. Yeah, I just have a quick comment. I can only stay on another 10 minutes. This is a great conversation. I'm a medical doctor near Boston, and um, I certainly understand that in history, um, there's a lot of mistrust with the medical field. I've learned that over time. I don't fully understand the perspective, but I have 
come to understand more what that means over history. So I know that's not easily corrected, but I just want to share a couple thoughts from the medical field, getting to know patients over the years who've been in situations where they haven't felt safe. Sometimes those are invisible things um, that people on the outside don't understand uh, from someone's own personal home. And um, the experience of feeling unsafe can then open up a lot of empathy and compassion for others who also don't feel safe. So in medical school, we learned about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And I think as a culture in the past three months, a lot of people have suddenly been honestly terrified, right or wrong. They could have been terrified to step outside their house or truly terrified because they had to say goodbye to a loved one over Skype or Zoom who was dying. Um, there's a fear and a suddenly all those other things just come to this, this visceral moment of just safety. And then um, originally during this, this first three months, a lot there was some racial things happening with the Asian community um, where they felt discriminated against because of how this started. But then now as things have developed, people have been more isolated, having that compassion, and seeing, well, the Asian community is not being murdered by police officers. <laughs> so there's this whole other level of understanding. And the final thing I'll say is I do think from talking to patient after patient after patient on mostly virtual visits, but some in person, people are truly reevaluating their, their, um, their life. Each individual yeah. seems to be saying like, wait, what's important here? What do I really want? They're not having the distractions of commuting and all the other normal distractions of life and keeping themselves busy and not really thinking about stuff that they shouldn't be thinking about. They're like forced to just be home. And a lot of them are reevaluating all kinds of things. Like, do I even like this job? Do I want to go back to this job whenever they invite me back? Do I um, want to live in this place? Do and they're, it's like this snow globe has been shaken up and they're just like, okay, when all this settles, I am only going to be on this earth a certain amount of time. Like what's really important to me. I'm hearing this from my patients. So I don't have the answers and I really want to understand a lot more about it, but um, it's just a conversation starter. And I, I guess I felt uncomfortable about joining and I, I want to make sure that each person can go beyond that piece of uncomfortableness and just do it. I think it's better. Excellent. And we really appreciate that because we need people to get past the inhibitions and jump in. We got to have these conversations. They're very important. All so, right. So what, what was my, anybody else with a hand up? Jim? Uh, Tiff has a hand up. All right, Tiff. <laughs> Thanks. Well, I did because I just wanted to address, um, there's also this, this dichotomy of, um, well, like Amy mentioned, a lot more uh, white people are reevaluating what actually matters to us. Um, you know, what matters in life? Who do we want to be? How are we going to step up? But there's a difference between what we intend and how we intend to be entering the conversation and the actual effect that it has. Um, so I just wanted, I wanted to bring that up as a large point that I hear being discussed within the white community and how to um, be part of anti-racist efforts. You know, a lot of people are coming up from a place where 
we do we do care and we we want to change this system we don't necessarily know how to change the system because people in power don't necessarily care and that's where voting becomes such an important piece of this um but if we're not operating from a place of very sincere awareness and self-reflection on the way that our our actions affect others and the way that our actions are um, perceived as you know again this performative versus authentic um, that's a real conversation that needs to be had so i just wanted to to bring that up so i had my little hand raised <laughs> all, right. all right so that's it with the hands that's it with the hands. <laughs> because it's a lot of us, and I just appreciate you guys' this time, but I just think that we have to talk about real solutions. Um, we have this other presence of, um, I would say, um, our white citizens. So can we kind of say, how are we gonna ascend from this? What is gonna happen next? Because after we get protesting, are everyone, is everyone going to their little space again? The, the earth opens up and then we carry on and wait for the next murder. So the question is, what are we going to do? I think that so far, and I haven't paid relentless attention to everything, so I could be missing something. Um, so far, the analysis that has come out of the protests and the pundits regarding this event have been sh too shallow for transformation. Mm. I mean, I, that's one reason why I mentioned, not that it's the the, the best thing to mention, that's what I mentioned about the love story and the lack of love stories and the lack of black love in the culture that's so abstract to a lot of white people and some black people because we're intoxicated by normalized white supremacy that we, we don't even recognize, recognize an assault on our humanity. Just like a lot of us use the N-word, which is a white supremacist insult because it was forced on us for so many years, it's become behavioral and intracultural among black people, but it really is an insult. I mean, to give an example, there's, a, there's an equivalent word ca called kafir that some of you may have heard of that's used in Tanzania or so-called South Africa by white people racist to put down the black people as the same genesis and same purpose as the, the so-called N-word, but because they have a linguistic and cultural memory, they are offended by the term and they don't use it among themselves because black people have been sterilized and domesticated and completely separated from any kind of indigenous memory, sometimes some of us will even recognize an assault enough to resist it. So if the conversation about reducing the brutality of white supremacy on the masses is superficial or just a reaction to disassociation to not want to be like those people that killed George Floyd, and we're not doing a nuanced analysis of how white supremacy destroys souls and hearts and lives, people will wind up relapsing back into white norms when it becomes no longer PC to show up publicly at Black Lives Matters Plaza in Washington, DC, which is probably going to be named its, its original name at some point. Who knows? The bottom line is that it becomes symbolic, like a, the, a dead body, like, a, of a, like Malcolm X's body is symbolic. It's not powerful anymore because it's gone. So when these waves are gone, you get back into symbolism, it's instead of social change. So I say all that to you, Queen, in terms of your question, is that my, that's my concern, is that it will go back and relapse back into white supremacist norms because the analysis and the careful white supremacist leftist press 
keeps the conversation so surface. Surface is not enough for real world transformation. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, and and that's that's part of my concern about sort of the dilution of um, the protest by coming more general um, and coming more encompassing of everything that is wrong with the system. Um, the more diluted it is, I think that precludes the, the level of depth that you're talking about in really understanding what's going on, um, or it, or at least, um, yeah, that, that's that's sort of the concern that I, that I have with it. It'll it'll just kind of get fade into the noise, and the the will to make the the deep changes might not actually happen. The follow through might not be there. But well, one thing, I, and I'll shut up after this. I've talked a lot, but one thing that is positive about this whole thing is the universal man, mandatory use of body cameras and that it will become illegal and you will have to pay a price with your job as a cop if you accidentally forget to remember to not remember to turn your body cam on. This is becoming, getting ready to become legislative and in in institutionalized law. That may save some lives even though lots of black people were killed on body, on body cam. But now it's not an option. So that's one of the bright spots on a systemic level that could have come out of this. But again, the behavioral level and the intracultural level may or may not change. I think, John, you had something, John? Yeah, a couple of thoughts. So first of all, I have seen really, I I, I mean, yeah, sure, there's always some superficial kind of uh, bland analysis of things, but I have read some great stuff in in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, Um, even Trevor Noah, he has some riffs uh, where he describes um, his take on racial inequality, and he's a fairly unique perspective being from South Africa, having been biracial, and what he's experienced in this country. Trevor Noah is great. I've seen some great interviews on MSNBC. Um, There's a professor from Harvard who studies uh, Black history and has talked about the profound uh, public health uh, damage that racism does, in addition to uh, the the violence that's perpetrated often by police. So I think in in that way, I think there is is stuff out there that's useful, but I think what's absolutely critical is is voting. Because I've heard people create these false equivalencies of, well, we're gonna go out and protest or we're gonna vote. It's not an either or, it's an and. You know, because if you don't go to the the ballot box and, you know, I understand that in some places they make it very, there's all kinds of, uh, you know, suppression against uh, against the black vote and they make it very hard for some people to legally vote. Um, And that's, you know, illegal and criminal and horrifying. But wherever we can, um, I think you need to get out there and vote and to some extent, even get involved in local politics if that's something that interests you to really try to influence things. And then I think there's a fascinating kind of question around, do we, you know, defund, you know, police? Do we just, do we look at reforming and restructuring? It seems like defunding police isn't going to have enough political support. So it's really about, I think, reforming and restructuring. But I think there's just a lot of important questions and a lot of important discussions that need to occur that address these issues in a meaningful, substantive way. I would just like to comment as far as, 
you know, the news and what we see on TV. Hold on a full second, Chris. You, I don't know if I'm breaking up a little bit. You're breaking up you just are. a little bit. Can you hear me? Yes, that's yeah. good. <laughs> I think as white people, we need to be careful what we believe, what we watch on TV because CNN, NBC, you know, all the major news channels are all ran by the white media and they pick and choose who they put. And I don't mean to say this to discredit any, it's true. any black person that's ever been on the news to speak about racism or things, but they, the people that they choose to put on TV aren't there to ask the tough questions. They, they are picked and chosen by the white media. And so we have to be careful uh, because they're, they're placed there strategically like it's a chess game and it's made to make us feel, remain comfortable with what's going on. So I just want to say that. Absolutely, absolutely. Great assessment, great assessment. Great assessment. Anybody else want to chime in on how we're going to ascend from here? What, what's, what's next? Yes, Tiffany, what you say something? Yeah, I think so. I, I was going to add to what Chris said. It, it's also about the ratings. You know, they're what they're putting on the on the even the news or is being manufactured for the ratings and how many viewers they're getting. Um, but in terms of next steps, this is a question that is definitely heavy on my mind. And um, as a white person, what I have been following is um, is continuing my own self-education, um, paying black activists for their work and black educators. Um, Mo, uh, Monique Melton is my, is my new favorite one. I just took her anti-racism crash course, which was incredible, um, as well as amplifying black voices, sharing, uh, sharing their experiences through, you know, just talking about social media platforms. But, I have a lot of a lot of questions about how to go further. I mean, yes, getting involved in politics, voting, um, but I do have questions about how how to how to keep this going. Like, how do we actually do the work of dismantling white supremacy? With white people, we're being called to deeply examine our own white fragility, have those difficult conversations with ourselves, with our fellow white people, and understand how insidious white supremacy is and how, um, how, thing, how concepts like white guilt have transformed into these really covert um, versions of white supremacy, like the, like the white tears and the white savior complex. That is another thing I wanted to bring up, being very careful about seeing ourselves as the white saviors who are swooping in. Queen, you mentioned as the premise of this whole pot of this whole conversation. Um, what about the white protesters who are putting their bodies between black protesters and the police? What does that symbolize? And you had mentioned something about how, how could that, how could that possibly symbolize some kind of um, morphed form of, of white supremacy. And I think that's a really fascinating question. And that is why within the white community, um, there's so much conversation around this deep self-scrutiny. How, how does that exist within each of us? And how are we, whether it's inadvertently or not, upholding the, the structures of white supremacy? So, um, 
I would also love to hear from, from you all what you think moving forward. Crystal, you have mentioned that white people need to, um, we need to be discussing these things within, within our own communities, and I think that's absolutely right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, okay, go ahead, Crystal. Yeah, yeah so it, exactly. So for, for each of the communities, like I said earlier, you know, there needs to continuously be a parallel movement. One of the things I did want to respond to directly, um, Tiffany, um, and I'm not saying that this is for everybody who has done it, but I can almost see um, there's a syndrome, uh, a medical term for, say, a parent or someone of authority who makes their child sick just to come back and uh, be the savior of the child. Mm -hmm. I forget what it's called. It's some type of syndrome. So in essence, yes, we yes. could parallel that to, and I'm not saying this is the case, but we could parallel that to the white supporter who's putting themselves in between the black person and the, um, the police because it's something that the white community has created. Mm -hmm. So now we come back to be that savior of the, from this, of the, of the mm -hmm. victim from this sickness. Wow. So I just wanted to kind of put that out there as an, as an illustration. Not that that's what's happened, but that's what that's one illustration. So having continuing to have those tough decisions, no matter what it creates. I saw a um a YouTube video where there was a young um a white woman. She was maybe about twenty, and she was really going at it with her father, who was very kind of like in this um total mode of lacking in in intelligence about anything that had to, that was going on pertaining to black people. So, um, you know, so having those tough conversations, regardless of, of what it, what it feels like or what it costs, that's the only way we get past the pain. Um, so, and that's gotta happen at every opportunity. It can't just stop after the protests or after the movement or when we feel a little comfortable. We've got to have it when we don't feel comfortable continuously because it's a continuous conversation that if it doesn't, if it does not result in some viable solutions, what it's going to do is it's going to kill an entire nation. That means white, black, everybody, because our mindset is going to continue to be sickening and we're going to die within our own thoughts. Whether it's, a, whether it's a physical death or a mental death. And that's part of what the problem is. Our police department, first of all, they need to be scrutinized um, for mental health issues more, um, more in depth before they even pick up a gun or go on the force because many of them have mental health issues that have not been addressed. Many of them, if you go back in their own, um, their own uh, history have been uh, abusers to some sort or have been abused. That's one thing. As for our communities, uh, the black communities, what we have a tendency to do is once it seems like, you know, uh, everything's calmed down a little bit, we got another, got, got another friend that doesn't look like us, we just go idly by and accept it. We've got to deal with our own trauma that has caused us mental issues that we don't as to Dr. Cleo's uh, example, that we don't show that love of self because of the trauma that has been impacted and perpetuated through years of saying we're not good enough. So we have work to do and we have to continue to do that, but it's gonna happen at a community level, case by case, day in and day out. This is not something that we 
have the right or have the time to sleep on. It is for the very life of our communities and for our children to come. So, so that's what each of us has to do. You've got to have those tough questions, conversations, even if the person stops speaking to you, even if the person curses you out, even if the person is physical, you've got to be willing to have that conversation. If you're going to lay down your life for something, let it be worth something. Let it be worth the full humanity as what this nation was created for. It's got to be full humanity or nothing at all. Uh, the the phenomenon that you described is called Mouchanson syndrome by Trump. Yes. In terms of making your child sick so you can save it. Yes. Um, yeah. This is uh, a very deep, nuanced matter. The matter of removing the deadly impact of what I call white supremacy myth. I always had the word myth because white people ain't no better than me. And I said, I ain't no, just I just my degrees to put some umph on it. White folks ain't no better than me. So I always put it in the terminology of myth, because it's a myth. I've never been nobody better than me, particularly somebody white. I have to make that clear. But this is nuanced because we live inside of social, linguistic, and constructs that reiterate the myth of white supremacy being a reality and black inferiority being a reality. Even the word white was constructed to create a false human hierarchy to put people who are being called white who are from Europe at the top of it. And it's a myth. White is a myth, because you're really pink-ish. You know, just like so-called black is a myth. So if we really want to get past the tendency to dehumanize people to the point of murder by law enforcement and systems, we have to look at a whole bunch of stuff, including the language that we use every day that implies that people have fair skin. And the fair skin is usually light or white, ironically. These are, these are terms that recreate and become behavioral that manifest into things that lead to, to the, the compromise, murder, or difficulty to, of being black in this society. So the, I, get to, I get to the underbelly of stuff because that's what we're gonna have to do if we're serious about changing the situation. And I think that, for example, it was in um, 2000, I believe it was 2015 after somebody's murder where, where they supposedly polled white people about how they felt about police, policing in this country. And in the wake of body number, whatever it was, most whites, according to two polls, said, oh, well, we, we cool with the police. Because they're protecting white folks. So why would white folks give up being protected by a system that, you don't, that makes you not have to worry about? Like, for example, when I went to Ferguson after Michael Brown was murdered, I interviewed all kinds of people, and I talked to young black men who talked about getting pulled over by cops and getting tickets because they, when a cop was behind them, they swerved because they were nervous. And their, and their steering wheel would move and of course the car would move and it would be doing this because they were concerned about the, about the cop behind them. And so they would pull over for reckless driving. And the white cops didn't give a damn about what I just said. They may or may not have known about it. But I'm just deconstructing how deep this white problem is in this manifestations, 
and how resolving it is linguistic, it's cultural, it's systemic, and you have to take a look among white folks about it. Well, I'm willing to give up this because there's some good stuff in this privilege. Despite that, it's blood money. White privilege is blood. Money. It's the equivalent of blood money. It's not a neutral phenomenon with no casualties. White privilege results in George Floyd's murder, along with Sandra Bland and so many people. That's the, the, those are the consequences of your privilege. So you got to look at whether you're willing to be white or human. Hmm. Okay. Are you willing to be white or human? And what I mean by human is to care about other human beings, is to create equity across the human spectrum, and to not have to be so insecure that you, that you need the illusion of your superiority to get up the next morning and feel good about yourself. It's that you're so concerned about being seen as mediocre that you make up stuff like white folks, Egyptians were white. When I've been, and they make me look dark-skinned. I mean, excuse me, light-skinned. But if you watched the last film about Egypt, Tom Cruise was a star. So this is how deep and, and, and you know, multi-dimensional this white problem is. And I'm not sure why folks want to give it up. I'm not sure why folks want to give up the blood money. And I think sometimes white people are in black spaces, are in some of these uprising spaces to make sure that they look safe enough where there will be no systemic transformation. So we, because we showed up, but when it's over, like the white people that were walking past my office with their white people are too silent signs, they went back to the suburbs. And none of the signs said, get rid of and dismantle whiteness. Get rid of the phenomena of white supremacy myth, which is at the core of why there's a stream of black people who've been murdered and lynched over and over again because some white boy was feeling insecure and needed to feel good about himself. So there goes your life, like what happened to Emmett Till. So again, I'm not really feeling, you know, encouraged until I hear, I'm not waiting on it. You know, I'm, not, I'm doing my thing. I'm not tripping and waiting for this. I do, I got stuff to do. But I will feel differently about my concerns when I see white people capable of having conversations that dimensional and who are talking about divesting from the blood money of white privilege, and that be how they discuss it. Until then, you know, I'm not, I mean, I'm, at, I'm in this conversation right now with white folks because Queen asked me to, I don't even do this, you know. Well, the good thing is, well, I think a lot of people here are doing things they don't normally do. And if we don't, and if we don't do these, no abnormal movements we don't grow as people so i i get that and i'm and i'm glad you're here and i'm glad other people here because we here. hey dr cleo i was like when she told me i was like oh work yeah yeah because i really think that dr cleo we need to hear that because you come from a psychological background and you have no tolerance anymore for for anything white when it comes to the the up the uplifting of black people and i get that and that's because of your your work um so but i really think it was important for us to dive into this this question because we're talking about protests and the protest will end but the question is where do black people stand after and where do white people stand and is it just convenient today because we're in COVID 19 or really people really having authentic feelings about safety i like what the doctor said when 
everyone is feeling unsafe at this moment. So when they see someone else unsafe, it, it actually, it, it hits harder because we're in the unsafe, we're uncertain even in our lives. So having you here, Dr. Cleo, is important. Having other people in the spaces, other white people in the space, and I'm sure some of them feel uncomfortable. But these are the questions that we have to talk about. I'm, I'm not trying to, I didn't want to start an attack. I wanted to start a conversation. And I think it's important. And um, so you're, what you're saying is important. What Tiffany said is important. What everybody's saying is really important. Speaking so of what Tiffany I am getting- Tiffany has a hand up. <laughs> Tiffany who has a hand up? Tiffany, you know, ah! right, Tiffany. Tiffany, stay with a hand up. This is the last point. Go ahead, Tiffany. <laughs> well, I was just very moved by what um, Dr. Managua said and uh, Dr. Cleo and, um, you know, I really respect your point of view and I'm, I'm glad that you were willing to join in on this conversation. Um, and I just wanted to um, express that I think a lot of people are coming from a very authentic place of wanting to change our society. And it, it's such a big, like you're illustrating and, and all the really fabulous points that you've brought up. It is such a deep issue that it, it feels overwhelming. And, um, you know, I'm just trying to, to find my place in the conversation and, and figure out what to do in a, in a respectful way that respects everyone's boundaries and agency um, uh, to try to do my part. And, and I, I think that's where a lot of these new white voices are coming from. But again, like I said at the beginning, that, that's, that is what I would like to believe. So I guess as these protests die down, we're gonna see how many people stick with the, the hard work. But, um, true. Mm -hmm. true, that's true. That, what you said is amazing, that's true. I, I don't know how to raise my hand on here, but I, I have a question. Go ahead. Go ahead. Just go like that, that's cool, you can go old school. Oh, I thought there was like a button. It is I a don't button. know how to raise it my hand. Button, but you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Cleo, I would, I would love to hear your perspective on, um, you know, this November, like, what is your, what is your perspective on, on people voting. Hey, hey, Dr. Cleo got to go. He said, look. <laughs> he said, no, I no, had. No, give him, this is going to be some superpower. Hit him, Dr. Cleo. Hit them. <laughs> I do have because in my opinion, like, I feel like, a, I feel like the black community, what reason does the black community have to vote? Because not one politician is, is talking about, you know, you know, building the black community or giving reparations or anything like that. So I'm just confused as to what the hell to think about voting anymore. Well, and the question. I, this, is, yeah, this is the question, but at the last uh, <laughs> if I have I've to, been wanting to ask this whole time. And I want to say that we have to look at, from my perspective, this voting process we should have looked at all elections like this. I mean, black people let Obama off the hook as a, to be responsible to black issues while he was president, so, because we didn't hold him accountable. So my point is that we're so busy, glad and excited that, that, that Stevie Wonder was at the White House and all kinds of superficial stuff that, that was being done that we didn't look at some of the stuff that we need to do legislatively as black people. But anyway, getting to the question, we have to start looking at issues long-term and prepare through these elections to create and locate decent 
alternatives to vote for. Right now, we don't got we don't got none, and it's all relative because, as far as I'm concerned, Joe Biden is is a leftist white supremacist. However, um, wow, the, the other person that's that that they call 45 and Cheeto and all these other terminologies is a straight up white supremacist who has loaded the judicial the judicial bench with young white supremacists to make sure that for the next 50 years or so, there will still be white people in place on a legislative basis to keep Absolutely. white control over the system. Yes. If, if, we are, if we are alert, and since Biden is, Biden is claiming to be an alternative to Trump, we can watch him, hold him accountable, and make him different from Trump. We can't do that silently. And we definitely can't do that if he's not in the White House which is not a metaphor this time, the White House. So we have to vote for the less of the two white supremacists who, <laughs> who is claiming to care about black people and got black people in pictures and black sisters waving from the back of his head and stuff, all these pictures he's taking. He got more black people around him than Freaknik or a funk concert. He's just got black folks everywhere. Since he's acting like he give a damn, we need to hold him accountable and make him give a damn or expose him for being full of crap. But even whether yeah. he's full of crap or not, we need to watch this system of candidates for the next four years and the next eight years to help manifest somebody who's decent for real. And so we got to do this in terms of, you know, comparative. Again, compared to Trump, who's on the right side of white supremacy, Biden is on the left white supremacy and is talking smack about being supportive of black people. We have to hold him to that. We, we, we can't hold Trump because Trump didn't even say it. He has black moments these days more than usual because he's trying to win the election. So he has going to black churches. He's going to Tulsa, Oklahoma, I think next week to the, to the uh, spot of the, one of the worst massacres against black people and black progress in this country historically. He's going there purposely to do something black. So he is pandering, but he's not good as pandering as, at pandering as, uh, Biden. as Biden. We need more judges like Olu Stevens. Well, they took him off the bench <laughs> immediately. And we need more. This is a process. We have to hang in there. And it's a long it. process. It's a long process, but we have to hang in there and do the process. Because guess what? That's what white folks did. That's how Trump became president. White homosexuals, white, white feminists, white women who were 50% of the people that, that put him in there waited and, and, and endured Michelle and Obama said, okay, when this is over with, we're gonna get the whitest thing on earth and put them in the White House and make America great again. They had patience. We gotta be patient too. Thank you all for listening. I wanna say that particularly with you, Tiffany and you, Chris, I can feel your heart. I can feel your decency, attempting to rise and be present to transform this, this society. And I hope you develop the literacy, the dimensional literacy and insight to do all the different things it will take to make it a safer place for people who are not under the rubric of whiteness and work on dissolving that rubric so we can all be human and stop being each other's throats. But I want to reiterate, I see your heart and I appreciate your heart. And thank you, Queen and G, for inviting me into this conversation that I wouldn't have had otherwise with some white folks. Right, that's why I was like, oh, oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> Well, we're glad you were at okay. So don't blame it on you. But anyway, I, hey. and I'm honored to see your hearts, Tiffany and Chris. I, I mean, I say that sincerely. But I have to go. 
Well, doctor, it's been a complete honor to, to be on this panel with you. I've really appreciated and learned so much from everything you've had to say. Thank you. Yep, we're leaving. Tiffany, you want to say anything before we get out of here? Ditto. Yeah, no, thank you so much for your valuable insight. And uh, yeah, thank you for being here. Thank you. And uh, Brother John left us. He had to, he had to bow out, Brother John. And um, thank you for putting this together. And G, thanks for all the awesome technical work. You guys are awesome. <laughs> and all of our visitors, David, and thank our visitors, G. We Jenny, appreciate that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Jimmy, Justin, he hasn't, he's been in the background listening. David sat through. Um, I think he's gone. Oh, there you are. Hey, David. The whole time. You. Yeah, the whole time. Appreciate you. Absolutely. We had Jenny rolling with us. Well, I'm Tiffany's mom, you see. So Oh, that's what's up. We yeah. love that support. Yeah. And Amy them. and Amy is her sister. So. Oh wow, yeah. love it. Amy yeah. too. Beautiful. Yeah. I wish so, I could. yeah. It was fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. Family really affair, awesome. Justin. You wanna say anything, Justin? No, I appreciate the uh let me listen in. I, there's a lot of road noise where I live, so I tried to stay on mute just so I didn't interrupt, but I really enjoyed all the conversation and really appreciate it. We appreciate having you. We really do. Crystal, we appreciate you, of course. Thank you yeah. so much. Yeah. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Okay? You're welcome. Much love, everybody. Guys, we, we, we thank you. This has been a great conversation. Let's thank work you. real hard together. That's the only way we can get rid of Absolutely. racism. All right. Be blessed, everyone. Thank, Thank you, you so much. much. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Queen. Bye. 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 That's outro. Reflect. Yeah. Reflect. Reflection. I think we're gonna call this reflection. All right. Reflecting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's reflecting. You know I'm flecking. Okay. So this conversation, um, I wasn't sure exactly what to expect. Um, it, it was a little bit different than when I, what I thought it was going to be, just given who all was in the room in addition to the invited guests. Sure. Um, you'll notice that there, were just, there was an audience present who was really there more to listen than, than anything else. And I think that um, that gave the conversation a different dimension because, you know, when you're speaking directly to the audience and you can um, see their, uh, how they are processing what you're saying, I think um, it added a lot to the experience of having the conversation. So, um, appreciate now, it. Mostly white. Correct. Correct. Which, which made sense, and right. That's why I think the conversation is so important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, my my background specifically has put me into a space where I'm very accustomed to white people who are extremely active in issues of social justice and issues of social justice that relate to black people just by nature of this being a predominantly black city. Mm -hmm. So I, the circles that I roll, roll in, um, I'm used to seeing white people um, advocating and allying with, with black people in, in different areas of, of action. So, that aspect of engagement wasn't new. I guess just the physical presence at the protest and just the, the energy of this specific protest, the magnitude just seems bigger. That yeah. was my impression coming in. I'm used to seeing people engaged, but the magnitude of it 
um, and the scope of it just seemed bigger this time. So going into the conversation, that was really what my impressions were. Mm. And we are on different ends of that spectrum. Um, I live in a black world, mm -hmm. per se. Um, I work in a setting that is white dominated. And so they don't have any, um, and there's nothing about social justice. I work in a medical field. Right, right. And um, it's white dominated. And um, first of all, we hardly even have those type of conversations. I don't mm -hmm. even know of time I've had, unless I've initiated or they've commented on my Africanness, mm -hmm. that we have those type of conversations. But since this protest and all of this um, unrest has happened and I have worked, nothing. No one has said anything. They're very quiet. It's like I'm working around. Eggshells, um, everybody on eggshells. Yeah, they used to be rats. Now they're church mice. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> they, don't want, they went to their cousins. So right. I, I've seen that, that e even like when I enter the building, it's like everyone's quiet. Right. But they don't have anyway. And I'm only there on the weekend, so I'm not able to kind of push the length the conversation that I would normally do when I was full time, you know, I had people on their, <laughs> their shoe on their back of their shoes all the time. So for me, this has been very enlightening to see because I come, my background is there's no love for the black. Real mm -hmm. talk. Mm -hmm. And um, you're just getting in where you fit in. You have the education, but really your voice doesn't matter. And your presence is only there because they have to. Mm -hmm. That's true. And so when I saw, see this protest, to me, it's, it's, it's a great thing to see for symbolism. Mm, it is okay. absolutely an amazing thing to see. I'm coming. It's absolutely amazing thing to see when it's, it's symbolic of how young people are change agents. They, right. you know what I'm saying? It's symbolic of how they, they're not as infected as we are. Because I just believe 30 and older, you're infected. The, the white supremacy apparatus, I don't care what color you are, has infected you to a point that in some way it affects your movements, your thought, or your perspectives. Because you've been around it for 30 years. 10 years is enough. Excuse me. Right. So, well, see, I think, too, when you, when you put that number out there, that's almost like a generational marker, too, because that gets into, like, the millennial generation and mm -hmm. the Gen Z um, generation. Yep. So I think that generational conversation, I think is a really important one too. Digital mm -hmm. natives, basically um, young people who've grown up in a connected world that have always had the ability to create communities of interest outside exactly. of their geographical space. And outside so, of their color too. Outside of their color. So the thing, yeah. like the thing that, this interesting about communities on the internet in general, I think that they are more in the beginning, especially they are sort of affinity groups around interest mm -hmm. because you are interested in, in something, you are a gamer, you are something other. And then you find other people, you mm -hmm. find other people who are into what you're into. And it's sure. easy to do that. Even if you're in a small town with no scene and you have sure. sort of the safety of your own, room that you're in but you can talk to people who find people who who kind of share this affinity for this thing or this interest or this knowledge 
Um, so there's been a lot of self-organizing communities around identities that include race, but also include other areas of intersecting identities. So there are a lot of times the people who've been always been isolated before because they haven't been able to find people to relate to, they've used both the performative nature of social media and the community nature of social media to connect with people and to signal the things that they're interested in so that other people can recognize, okay, maybe that's somebody who... And you spoke about the signaling. Yeah, yeah. You did speak about that. And that is so, it's such a pivotal, it's real pivotal when it comes to the conversation because young people communicate in a different way. Absolutely. And, and, and you know, we always did. Like young people always, always did. did. You're right. Because your swag, did. like it's as simple as your swag when you went to school was trying to say something. The, all, all we always communicated with signals to figure out which click we were with. It's always. All, always. So you always but now trying it's a techno signal. You're now so right. now it's now it's it's bigger than just and it's international. It's technological right. and right. it's international. So you see how young people can signal each other and they don't have and they're not as infected not to show up because they see injustice without without all of these they have filters. They can filter out what's right and what just inherently to them doesn't feel right. right. And they act upon it. Right. You know, and, yeah, because you, you can get we see movement from um they're recognizing something that is unjust or they think that's not right. Right. They're talking to their community about it. Right. And they're showing up. Right. Yeah. And there's built in yeah, there's built in social accountability with that. Be, because all day. When you okay. are when you are vocal, when you are always out there posting, and you know if you out there, then like okay, what's up now? You why you quiet? What, what's up? Is this this what's up? that's yeah. what they say about Jerry Jones. Where you at, Jerry? You right. talk about everything, Mr. Dallas Cowboys. Right. So I think <laughs> there is a level of social accountability that yep. is kind of built into the way these communities work. Um, yeah. And and they and have history. they don't want to look horrible in history. You right, know, and they history is implications of their behavior. They understand it. So the thing about history that a lot of people forget about is there's an element of history that is recent history, like somebody pulling up a tweet that you had. <laughs> so it's so easy to be on like wrong on because, the wrong side <laughs> because you are documenting every thought that you've had. Absolutely, you know what I'm that saying. So amazing you said that. People don't get it. Every time you're tweeting or, or sending a Posting, text, that's, it's your out there. that's your emotion right there. And somebody right. can, that's a digital imprint and they can bring that out. Yeah, so, so there's people who people understand this shit. Yeah, so there's right. people born um, and, you know, there's people born now who's had, who've had basically their entire lives documented online in real time. There you go. There you so go. they have an awareness of um, how they are positioned against the prevailing conversations and the norms that are going on, and they respond to that, to that directly. So I think that the social dynamics of um, the way the movement spreads uh, is it, really kind of the perfect storm of um, marrying the technology and the sort of the psychology of young people who grew up endemic to it rather than people who were older and adapted to it prophetic that's what we see and that to me is the reasoning for the uprising of white involvement and black protests 
the recognition of the wrong, but also the technological movement to try to quell that wrong. Right. And that brings out communities of like people who just touch each other via the computer and then they show up. Right. But they do that for everything. Even when they meet up, they hit the computer and everybody meets. Right. When they're right. ready to fight, they all meet through the computer and then they go fight each other. This <laughs> is what this is how young people communicate. Right. And so we see white kids are showing up because they inherently don't like what's going on and they have some sort of guilt. It has to be that hmm. this has happened and you can't even, history shows this continues to happen. Right. So what we're seeing is a lot of different layers of movement in one protest, I think, other than Black Lives Matter. Right. Which well, it is definitely um, beyond Black Lives Matter. I think, I think that um, that kind of opened the door. Yep. But there's a whole lot of conversations that are happening with that door open. And um, John alluded to that. And that was what John alluded to, the brother Lefkowitz. And yeah. he, he was right in a lot of ways. But that is the dilution of the white involvement. Because right. they, well, they have this openness to include all of the wrongs. Right, right. Well, see, that's, that's the thing. Right. And our problem is Black people dying in the street. And we don't want to hear about no more wrongs right now. We want to hear about Black people dying. So right. John, he brought up a prophetic point, but that's what white people do. Right. They bring so, all of the ailments to the table. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think that the theory behind that in, in many respects is from, from the way that I understand it is it goes into the idea of intersectionality because if you a marginalized community by definition, you're going to be a minority and your voice is going to be limited by that. So if yep. you are looking at, if, if you have more than one marginalized group, if you are banding together, that gives you that much more, of a voice. Um, so it's sort of like, the, it's like a wave that kind of, like, you know, a wave that's going down the hill. It, when it's rolling down, a snowball is rolling down the hill, it's picking up. It's picked, it picks everything up on the way down. And when it gets down. alluded to. You know, she said that when people suffer, everybody brings their suffering more or less to the right. table. Right, and it opens you up. Yeah. Coalesce these alliances of it coalesces alliances through the suffering. Right, and so since people are not working, people are hungry. They lost people losing their jobs. Other people feel marginalized. Then this big issue of racism brings everything to the table. All the ills hit the table at once. Right, because racism, I think, as a concept, is sort of the perfect storm of injustice because it, it goes right to um, right to uh, an, a trait that you are born with that you don't have any control over that a person is judging you by. It, is, it has nothing to do- and, and building up narratives around, yes. Right. So, um, so I think the, the biggest thing with that, and I, and I think I might've raised a point in the conversation too, is the more, the more specific and sort of policy focused and and 
legislation focused the energy is, the the more good it's going to do. So you said it has to be more structured. It has to stay structured and stay intentional. Right. Or you lose you lose what you're trying to do because it's so diluted. That's what right. you said. Right. Your yeah. Head. Yeah. And so and, and and I think that a lot of times the a lot of the times the people whose voices raise up in a situation like that, they understand um they understand the that there is something that's wrong. They may not have an answer and then they say, Well, it's not my responsibility to tell you how to fix it. You gotta fix it. Um, you know, I I don't know how to fix it, but I know it's wrong. And that's basically what most people are saying. That's what then, the that's what the guest said. They Right. You, know, you don't know how to fix that. it, you know that it's wrong. So yeah, I guess yeah. then really getting clear about the um the fix. Yeah, well, getting clear about some very specific things. And I've seen some policies that get pro get proposed when you're going talking about um like police reform and and defunding and reallocating funds from police to different places. Um there are some very specific things that are out there that that could possibly make things better. That's what they're talking about. But they're right. also like um you know the but the symbolism for Europeans is still appearing. They feel that if you take down Confederate statues, if you change right, it's, names, that's all, army yeah, that's, bases, yeah, that's you, all very well and yeah, good. If you change army bases and all of that, that means something to Black people. It, it doesn't. doesn't though. Let me make uh -huh. you guys understand: we don't give a damn. We don't care about what we like. Care about is our children dying in the streets. Right. Yeah. So that's those. What we care about only. We don't care about your statues because we've lived around these. They don't. Yeah. So <laughs> they me, don't matter. <laughs> yeah, I don't care about none of that. And and They're I have. Not right, but we don't give a damn. Right. What we care about is vigilantes and police killing black people and making excuses, and there's no, no punitive measures towards them. That's what we care about. Right. So yeah, and I think the the symbolic movements are are killing very, it. Well, well, they're very splashy um it's symbolic bro they serve they serve the the, <laughs> right they they serve the purpose of raising the awareness but they aren't they are meaningless without very specific policy reforms or legislative changes behind but it's not raising awareness for the people it's it's for white guilt and fragility well, well here's the thing though it has nothing to do with black people it has to do with white folks they finally recognize and they think that's going to help it well, won't. well no what i mean by raising the awareness is when people uh when those windows policies come on the table then the votes to support those changes and the actions on that level the more people the more it's front of mind for people when it's time to make the decision what the policy will be, the better the chance are of getting those things passed. So even though the statue coming down itself isn't doing anything, people are looking at that and say, well, what's going on here? And it makes mm -hmm. people look. So when it's time to vote, when it's time to bring people in, and this is an election year, and, uh, and there's a lot of things happening sort of on the level of local government where really every every municipality has their own situation going on with the police and they okay. have to figure out what they need to do so yes. having this conversation broadly i think still can translate into 
a police district in a town making a change in the way that they do things. You know? Well, it's happening. I mean, if yeah. we look at the, you know, the news of what's happening, like um, it's, it's, it's a city in uh, Minnesota, they won't even let the police in. They have, they cannot come in. They're doing their own patrolling. They've taken right. over. Well, I mean, I mean, that's happening. That's something vigilante. Black folks can do that. I know that's not a black town because that wouldn't go down for us. But that's what's happening. You right. have some city councils that's defunding no police in schools anymore. So it's it's things coming out of and and, and I think that makes sense. I think that it should never have been cops in schools. Mm-hmm. I think that we should never go that far. Um, I think it's a lot of things that we can change, but we got to get off of this symbolic. You put a plane in the air with Black Lives Matter, or we go downtown and and the building is painted black, red, and green, and that's supposed to make us happy. We're looking for substantive movements, right? Um, policy initiatives. And and some, I think they need to invest directly in the black in black communities and and black initiatives directly, not throughout the city council, so it can be dispersed by white hands. It needs to be directly divested in the community, in the children, in the schooling, in the programs that is going to make people feel like they are part of this fun country and give them access to what this country can bring. To, to most people that haven't been brought to black people. So I think we need real movements. And that's my only thing. I don't, I'm sick of the symbolism. So from what we spoke about, do you think we have um, some good measures to try to really go about real change from that conversation? Do you think we, we came up with real initiatives from the white community that would help our plight? as black people? No, I think what what I came out with was just a different level of understanding. And understanding is sort of the, um, under, kind of understanding where people were, were and how they were seeing things. And what that does, it, it gives you an idea of what their capacity is, mm. how they can help, you know? Because- Having having understanding where a person is, yeah. If you don't know where a person's head is at or what their thoughts are on a thing, then you really, even if they could do something that was useful to, to that could have a positive benefit, you wouldn't know what to ask for if you don't understand what their capacity is or if you don't understand the way that they're seeing their role or what their environment is like in the way that they're seeing things. So having that level of understanding, and I think that seeing uh, a witnessing a, ge- a a genuine willingness is extremely valuable. It is. Um, it is. So I think just the presence is inv- is valuable. Right. Yeah. The the willing the willingness and the openness is I think is is important and understanding what the solutions have to be. I, I guess it, it's really a question for. Like we here in Baltimore, people might be saying this in all different places. Some of the places people that we talk to are in different places. So the solutions might look a little different in every place. But I think mm-hmm. the big thing is having a clear understanding of who who is presenting themselves to be of assistance, mm-hmm. having a clear understanding of of some very specific things that they can be um, advocates for and with. 
I know there are a lot of petitions that are being signed and there's a lot of legislation that's being pushed forward. There's a lot of money that's being donated and raised for different um, like uh, bail funds. And, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of action on that level. Um, People sharing a whole document full list. Okay. These are all the different black businesses or these are all the different places that you can donate. These are positions that you can sign to, get this legislation in the, you know. Yeah. So there is a lot of that that's happening um, that, that I kind of see people doing. Uh, and, and I think just more of that and more um, recruiting other people and bringing other people in who can build momentum to that side of the equation. Everybody don't need to be out in the street. That's not everybody's ministry. Somebody needs okay. to stay in the house. A revolution has to have pieces. Stay, stay, um, stay in the house. Yeah, you got to have the researcher. You got to have the techno. Right. You got to have it all. Right, stay and in the house. Cook some, in the street. Yeah, cook some dinners for some families that need some help. Yep. Who to somebody? You, yep. you dig? Because we know that there's a lot of there's a lot of gaps. There's a lot of there's a lot of needs that are unmet that kind of feed into a lot of the issues that we have in the community, and I think that. Um, looking at it from a human standpoint and understanding sort of what your unique gifts and skills are. If you're working in your highest capacity in, in the capacity where you have the best ability to make change happen, then you're, you have, you give your highest contribution. So um, that that's really all I ever want a person to do is like bring their gifts to the table. I don't, you know, I don't, I want, I want to understand what, it is that you can do that you can do that maybe somebody else can't do as well as you, you know, and bring, bring that to the table. Bring that to the table. Yeah. And and you know, my final thought is I'm going to say ditto because you know, you're the smartest one in the room. So I'm always going to say ditto to what you said because what you said was the truth. And I like what you said, but my final um, thought is, if we all work within our own universe, and when I say that your community or whatever, your own spaces, we work in our own universe and be very effectual in that universe and help someone, imagine how the world will change. Right. We go out to help other people, but you have people right in your universe can use these this type of help. Right. Help someone right in your universe let and ensure that they help someone in their universe right who ensures that they would help and now we got a movement right. of the gift and i think it has to be personal if you want this system of white supremacy the apparatus as i call it the wsa if you want the white supremacy apparatus to change one of the biggest um is kryptonite starts with unity Relationships, yeah. Yeah, relationships. The reason why white supremacy works so well is the lack of relationship. So we definitely have to go into our own universe. That's my final thought. And clean up our own dough before we run down to Lombard Street with a sign. You you get what I'm saying? (laughs) Clean your own dough up. Right. So that's my final thought on that. And my final saying will be change we must or die, we, we will. That's it. Change we must or die, we will. So we have to make changes so we can have a thriving, a thriving society. 
And right now we're not thriving. We're just existing. So we have to change. So um, I, I love what we did tonight, hearing other voices. It was good for me. It was very enlightening. And that's it. That's all I have to say. Queen of B, Black Box Radio, the Amasi Center for Black Wellness and Culture. Dr. Cleo couldn't be with us. He had another something to jump on. So we were kind of talking for him, but we thank him for his analysis. Right, absolutely. And I think all of the people. Um, Who would you bring in, G? Let's thank your folk. So t- Tiffany Black. And all of her folks. She got Jenny Black. <laughs> it's a yeah, lot and of Amy. Yeah. Tiffany Amy, the Brock. family. Yeah, to the black family. I love it. How funny is that? We want to thank the black family. Right. <laughs> and we want to thank um, John Lefkowitz for his genius and his perspective. Absolutely. We want to thank Chris Furnish. Absolutely. Um, definitely for her um, input. The illustrious Crystal Parker. Yeah. What would we have done without Sister Parker? So we thank her too. That that was it, right? And then we had some other guests that didn't speak. Right, right. Um, young males. And we appreciate them being present. They were there the whole time and they just listened. So that was a great thing. So um, stay tuned. We we get ready to do some, some good stuff. We, we're starting a forecast series. Black forecast. Black Baltimore forecast. So it's coming. All right. Holla. G, take us out. All right, if you've enjoyed this conversation, you know what to do. You go to blackboxradio.com. That's B-L-A-K-B-O-X-X-R-A-D-I-O.com. You can find all the great content that we've been creating uh, over the last almost, it's going to be a year before you know it. A lot of great stuff there. Um, You can find us, if you're watching us here, probably you might be watching us on YouTube. You can find us there. You can also find us on all major podcast platforms at Black Box Radio. Um, so check us out. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Black Box Radio and find us on Twitter at Box Black. That's B-O-X-X-B-L-A-K. Oh, yeah. So listen, we're closing out this conversation series, Black Box Radio. We out. Peace.